people who hear me say this will not believe me, but there was a period of time about, I don't know, 25 years ago when buying a product that was made by Apple Computer was considered a very risky venture, even foolish, because the experts 25 years ago were telling us that Apple Computer would soon be bankrupt, out of business. If only I had bought stock in Apple back then. But being a fanboy of Apple, as I was back then, was a lot like being a member of a religious cult. I'm not joking. Um, and if it was like being in a religious cult, let me just say, I drank the Kool-Aid because I was very eager to convince friends, family, co-workers, even complete strangers that their lives would be much better if they purchased a Macintosh computer and not one of those evil Windows PCs. Please don't make fun of me. I know it's silly. One time I was at a computer store looking at all these shiny new Mac computers that I could not afford when a young man came up to me and asked me if I knew anything about Macs, that he was considering switching from Windows to Apple, and he wanted to know why I thought it was better. Well, well, friend, I'm glad you asked. I'll be happy to tell you. And I proceeded to talk to him for a long time, and I listened patiently, and I answered every one of his questions until finally he said, listen, you've been very helpful. I'm going to go home and think about it. But would you mind if I have any more questions, would you mind if I, just, if I could just give you a call? And I said, sure. And I didn't give it a second thought until a couple of days later when he called me. And let me tell you, he had questions. The first question he had was, have you ever thought about being your own boss? Have you ever thought about becoming financially independent? Have you ever thought about running your own business? If so, let me tell you about some multimedia, some uh, multi-level marketing company. I mean, I should have known, right? I mean, I mean, no offense to, to multi-level marketing, I promise. I mean, I have a cabinet full of Tupperware. But, but uh, it's just that I know why he was talking to me. He wanted to sell me something, which is fine. But why was I talking to him? Why was I so eager and enthusiastic to talk to him. I wasn't getting paid. I didn't work for Apple. I wasn't making a sales commission. It was only later when this troubling thought crossed my mind. Why can't talking to other people about Jesus be as easy as talking to them about computers? <laughs> It's an important question because remember, you made promises to our United Methodist Church when you joined, at least if you joined since 1996, and you promised to love Jesus and support this church through your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your, your witness. But you're not, you're not just witnessing because 
the church told you to. You're witnessing because Jesus commanded us to do so in his great commission. And the word witnessing comes from the version of the great commission that Luke records Jesus saying about 40 days after his resurrection, right before he was ascended to heaven in Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, when Jesus spoke these words about going to the end of the earth, the continent of North America surely seemed like the end of the earth. But today, it's really not even close to the end of the earth. According to a missions organization called the Joshua Project, there are 7.75 billion people living in the world. Of those, 3.23 billion live in a people group who have never heard the gospel, and they don't even have access to the gospel. And that, that is uh, 7,414 people groups that have no access to the gospel. That represents 41.6% of the world's population. How is that possible? And of course, that doesn't even include, that certainly wouldn't include the United States, in which a majority of the population say that they are Christians. But according to a 2020 study by Barna Research, only a quarter of these self identified Christians say or agree strongly that their faith is very important in their lives and that they've attended church within the past month. Weekly church attendance is way down. It's down one-third from 1993. Our country is filled, in other words, with nominal Christians, Christians in name only. So it's no secret that we have a mission field right here in our own backyard. And I'm sharing this with you because today's scripture has a lot to do with evangelism or witnessing. I use those two words interchangeably. And more than a few preachers and commentators have noticed that today's scripture provides a template for how to witness. So let's pay attention. First, look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. This chapter narrates Jesus's call of his first five disciples. John, the author of the gospel, Andrew, Andrew's brother Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Nathaniel is also known by his last name in the other three gospels, which is what? Bartholomew. That's a last name. That means son of Ptolemaeus. In the other three Gospels, you may recall, it almost seems like when Jesus calls his 12 disciples, he's using some kind of Obi-Wan Kenobi mind control. He's using the force, you know, 
these are not the droids you're seeking. Um, but, uh, but anyway, because, because, because Jesus, Jesus is like walking on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Peter, Andrew, James, and John, come follow me. They leave their, their fishing nets in their boats, and they come follow him. And it seems like they don't even know Jesus, but that's not what's going on. And John gives us a fuller, more complete picture. The first chapter of John tells us that these disciples already knew Jesus, that they'd already been converted. They had already been following Jesus, even as they had kept their, their day jobs. But when Jesus later calls them to be one of his 12 disciples, he's calling them into full-time ministry, leaving behind their vocations. And that's the difference. The call of the 12 in the other Gospels takes place sometime after the events described in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 tells the story of how these first five disciples came to believe in Jesus. But I love verse 43. Jesus goes to Galilee. He finds Philip and says, follow me. Now, why does Jesus go to Galilee? Why does he find Philip? A clue is given in verse 44. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Andrew and Peter, you see, had met Jesus just the day before. They had started following Jesus just the day before but they were friends with Philip. So it seems very likely that Peter and Andrew told Jesus to go and find Philip because they were friends and they, they knew that their friend Philip would be receptive to following Jesus, the Messiah. Um, now that's reading between the lines, but this seems like a very reasonable inference. So the first and most important principle of witnessing is to ask Jesus to go to people who were lost, to reveal himself to people, and to call them to be his disciples. That's what Peter and Andrew did. They asked Jesus, and so he went. As Jesus himself will later say in John's Gospel, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Before anyone becomes a Christian, in other words, something supernatural must take place. We need to pray that that supernatural thing will happen. Now, I think I know Methodists pretty well, and I know myself pretty well. And I know that probably most of us would rather drink an extra tall glass of colonoscopy prep before we would open our mouths and talk to people about Jesus and our faith. And we often say that we, we don't know how to do it. We don't know what to say. And I get it. But I hope you see that this first and most important principle of evangelism is something that you and I already know how to do. Do you know how to pray? Do you, of course you do. Are, are you praying right now? Are you praying right now for people you know who were lost, who need Jesus? Tell them, tell, I mean, tell them, tell Jesus to go to them and reveal himself to them and rescue them. Not long ago, a pretty famous pastor who's retired uh, from our conference 
posted something on Facebook. His name is Warren Latham. Some of you might remember Warren from Tekoa when he got his start in ministry as the pastor at St. James UMC. This was just before he was appointed to a little church in Alpharetta called Mount Pisgah United Methodist. And under his leadership, because of God's grace, uh, Mount Pisgah grew in, in the 80s and 90s and became, well, a megachurch is what we would call it. The bottom line is Warren is easily one of the most successful Methodist pastors of his generation. And he posted this on Facebook. And if you don't mind, I'd like to, to, to read a lot of it to you. Um, he says now that he's retired from full-time pastoral ministry, he gets to go and speak um, at churches and preach at churches. Um, and these churches, like our church, have prayer times during which people share prayer requests. And he said that he hears requests all the time for physical healings and physical safety, healing from sickness, healing after surgery, safety during childbirth, safety for police officers, safety for soldiers. And he hears requests for, for comfort to the grieving. And, um, and, and there's nothing at all wrong with any of these prayer requests. What's wrong, he said, is what is usually left unsaid. Rarely, if ever, has he heard anyone say, I want to pray for my husband. I want to pray for my son, my daughter, my neighbor, my friend, who is lost without Jesus, who isn't saved, who is in need of spiritual healing, who is in far greater danger than anyone simply suffering from cancer or heart attack or natural disaster or violence. Why do I say that? Because the threat that this lost person is facing is far more serious because what this lost person is facing is not just something that kills the body, but something that sends him to hell. Not that we shouldn't pray for our physical welfare or for the welfare of people that we love, by all means. But what if we decided as a church that what happens to us matters far less than what happens to those that we know who don't know Jesus? What if we lived as if our first and most important responsibility was to fulfill the Great Commission, to be witnesses to the world? Are you praying right now for friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, classmates, who need Jesus. Tell Jesus to go to them. You can do that. You can pray for them. Even if you think you can't do anything else related to witnessing, you can pray. <clears throat> now let's look at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. So here, notice first of all that Philip is speaking from personal experience. He's saying, you know, what I'm telling you, I know from my own experience with Jesus is true. I know Jesus is the Messiah, but Philip goes further and he relates the Old Testament prophecies for the Messiah 
and connects them, he connects them to Jesus because he probably senses that his friend Nathaniel is a bit more skeptical than, than other people. And Nathaniel's never going to follow Jesus unless he knows that Jesus conforms to the prophecies of the Old Testament. So that's what Philip is doing. But guess what? Philip's not very good at it. I mean, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Both of those descriptions of Jesus raise red flags in the mind of his friend Nathaniel. Well, okay, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, of course, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, but he's not from there originally. He's from Bethlehem. The Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah was going to come from Bethlehem. And Nathanael knows his Bible. And he knows that if Jesus is the Messiah, he better be from Bethlehem, not Nazareth. And that probably explains in part why Nathanael you know, objects and says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He knows his Bible. And so Philip is wrong, ultimately, about Nazareth. Also, he tells Nathanael that he's the son of Joseph. Well, of course, Jesus is the son of Joseph. He was, he's the adoptive son of Joseph. But that's hardly, that's hardly as important as a truth that Nathanael himself would come to appreciate in verse 49 of today's scripture the truth that Jesus is actually the Son of God. My point is, I admire Philip for his boldness and his eagerness to share his faith with his potentially hostile and skeptical friend. But he doesn't say nearly enough about Jesus. And, and what he says is a little misleading. But... This leads to the second principle of witnessing that emerges from today's scripture. You don't have to be perfect. You, you don't have to get everything right. You, you don't have to say all the right words. Don't misunderstand. You should certainly try to get it right, but you shouldn't let your fear of saying something wrong prevents you from saying anything at all. Because remember the Great Commission verse that I shared from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. See, it is not ultimately up to you to save anyone. But if you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit inside you. You have power to be an effective witness. Just a few days ago, I was in my office at church, and my office window overlooks the church playground. And I heard children playing, and I looked out my window, and it, there was a father and a mother, and there was a whole bunch of kids, and I didn't know them. They weren't members of this church, which makes, us, which makes me realize actually how important that playground is, because this happens frequently where people from our community will come and use the playground, which I'm delighted for them to do. But that's an outreach opportunity when you think about it. Well, okay, so this was a Thursday afternoon, and I was really busy 
working on my sermon on witnessing, and uh, I thought to myself, I wish these people would go away and stop bothering me. And then I realized, of course, I felt this tug in my spirit that said, um, Brent, uh, there's your mission field right literally 25 yards away. Um, go and introduce yourself to these people. Go and talk to these people. Go and invite these people. Indeed, go and witness to these people. They're on church property. They can't be offended if the pastor comes and talks to them, right? So I went. But before I left my office, I promised this thought crossed my mind. I don't know what to say. <laughs> what am I going to say to them? How am I going to witness to them? And I felt the Lord leading me, uh, as he so often does, uh, to, to, to this thought. Brent, just open your mouth. You'll be okay. Just open your mouth. I'll give you the words. And the Lord was faithful to do that. And Jesus talks about this in the Gospels. He says, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. I know from experience that's true. And so I did go out there, and it was great. Had a great conversation, great witnessing opportunity. It was wonderful, and it wasn't hard. Well, I mean, it was hard when I'm sitting in my office not wanting to go. But the moment I decided to go, walked across the lawn, it was not hard. And I do think that's because Jesus' promise is true. He'll give us the words. Just do what Philip did. Open your mouth. Take the risk. Trust in the Holy Spirit. Your words of witness have power, not because of who you are and what you know, but because you have the Holy Spirit living in you. He'll give you the words to say. Finally, when Nathaniel objects to Philip and says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I get the feeling that Nathaniel doesn't really know how to answer this objection. The truth is, Nathaniel doesn't know why Jesus is from Nazareth when the Messiah is supposed to be from Bethlehem. He doesn't know that Joseph and Mary went down to Bethlehem before they had Jesus. He doesn't know this is Joseph's ancestral homeland. Jesus probably didn't tell him yesterday when he met him. I mean, we have to learn these things over time. But I love the way Philip answers this objection. Come and see. And as one commentator pointed out, there's a big difference between saying come and see and go and see. Go and see. If he had said go and see, it's like you're on your own, buddy. You need to figure this out on your own. Come and see says, listen, Let's find the answers. Let's, let's figure this out together. I'm in this with you. I am so interested that you believe in Jesus. I'm going to help you get the, get the answers. Come and let's go talk to Jesus. Come and see uh, if, if he can't answer uh, these questions that you have. And so he's inviting 
Nathaniel to go and experience Jesus for himself. Now, you may recall a story later in John's gospel in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. She goes after she has an encounter with Jesus. She goes and she tells everybody in the town about Jesus. She's a great witness. And then they come to Jesus and experience him for themselves. And they say in John 4, 42, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. And there are modern commentators who love to say, oh, that's the Bible being sexist. Because of course, you know, the, the men in this town would never take the word of a woman. That's not at all what's happening here. Um, that misses the point entirely. The point is no one comes to saving faith in Christ because of anyone's words. But everyone who becomes a Christian does so because of a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that's what saves Nathaniel. Yes, he needs Philip to witness to him, but it isn't until Jesus speaks to him with, with supernatural insight and knowledge about his character and life. Jesus says to Nathaniel, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And whatever that, I mean, like, Nathaniel knows that is that describes him to a T. And he says, well, how do you know me? <laughs> and then Jesus says something even more mysterious. He says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. We always want John to give us more information than he does in his gospel. And oh my goodness, the scholars and the commentators love speculating about what, what is the symbolic significance of this fig tree and what was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree. Listen, that misses the point. The point is that Jesus had supernatural knowledge about Nathanael, that Jesus could not have had apart from God. Maybe Nathanael was under a fig tree on the other side of a steep hill. There's no way Jesus could have seen him. The point is, Nathanael experiences Jesus for himself, has a supernatural encounter with Christ, and he confesses his faith and is saved. So the third and final principle of evangelism from this scripture is we must give people an opportunity to experience Christ for themselves. And one important and obvious and very practical way that all of us can do this is by inviting people to come and experience Christ. Well, right here, for instance, I know it's difficult with COVID and I, our numbers are down for that reason and so many people are watching at home. Maybe we have to be creative. Well, for example, we have, we have very fine online worship now. Did you know this? If you, I know y'all are here, but I'm telling you, it's pretty darn good. The church has invested in the equipment that we need and the software and whatever else that we need 
to, for us to do really good live streaming services. And then after they're streamed live, they're available um, at anyone's convenience to watch. So, I mean, we can be sharing links to our services, for instance, both the 8.30 and the 11. It's all there. It's all online. There are opportunities, even in this COVID era, for us to invite people. Are we doing it? Because it's so easy. Remember the three points. First point, pray. Second point, Trust in the power of the Holy Spirit and don't worry that you have to say everything right. And the third point is invite. Invite people to come and experience Christ. Um, so I didn't say this at 8.30, and, I, and usually Patty is there, and if she, if she uh, was there, I apologize. But somebody recently filled out a visitor's card and said that they came, they, they, the reason that they heard about this church because of that nice lady working at the Hallmark store. Isn't that sweet? And of course, that's referring to Patty. Um, so I know that, that so many of you are inviting people to come to church, but I've been here for a year and a half, and let's face it, we don't get many visitors. We just don't. I wish we did. I'm working on it, and I know many of y'all are working on it, but I think you'll agree that, um, that we all can pitch in when it comes to inviting and to, if we're going to become a people who are committed to fulfilling the Great Commission, it's going to take all of us working together to make that happen. I know we can do it. I know we can do it, uh, you know, if we follow these principles and we trust in the Lord. Um, so let's go back to my question at the top of the sermon. Why was it easier? For me to talk to complete strangers about buying computers than it is for me to talk even to friends about following Jesus. And I'm sure you've had a similar experience. You weren't a geek like me about computers, but, uh, but I bet your experience, you, you, you find it, it difficult to talk to people about Jesus. And I'm sure there are lots of interesting sociological reasons why this is true. I mean, I'm out around people a lot, and I never hear anyone talking about Jesus. I mean, he doesn't come up naturally in conversations. And I mean, it can be really scary and awkward to initiate a conversation. Talking about Jesus is deeply countercultural, let's face it. Um, and we don't want to feel like we're all alone, you know, doing this. But there is a deeper reason why you and I find it difficult to fulfill the Great Commission. And I want to talk about it by sharing um, briefly an experience five years ago. It's something you might have known about. Um, five years ago, it was, there was this terrifying event that was in the news. 21 Egyptian Christians were captured by ISIS terrorists, and they were led down in chains to a beach 
in Libya somewhere. And it was all captured on video thanks to these terrorists. Not that I dared to watch it, but I read news reports by people who did watch it. And these 21 Christians could have saved their lives just by saying they didn't, they no longer believed in Jesus. They were no longer Christians. I mean, who's going to know? They could, they could lie just to save their necks. If, I mean, then they could repent later, right? You know, I'm sorry, Jesus. You know, I just said that because I've got a family back home to support. I mean, you, you can imagine the temptation. I'm not saying that's what they should have done. But you can, uh, gosh, you could rationalize anything, right? And, and so when I hear news reports like this, I just put myself in the shoes of these Christians. And I, I think, oh, what would I do? Would I have the courage that they had? But none of these 21 Christians were willing to do that. All of them continued to maintain their faith in Christ. And the, according to the news report, before the swords came down on their necks, these men shouted their praise and thanksgiving to Jesus Christ, our Lord. The very next moment they're in the presence of Jesus, they're doing just fine. <laughs> but what courage, what a witness. It is inspiring to me but we Christians in the West, when we hear about something like this, we do feel inspired by the boldness, the courage to proclaim the name of Jesus, even if it costs us our lives. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think we might also say that we feel a sense of relief. Thank God we don't have to go through that here. Thank God we will never face that here. Thank God that doesn't happen here. I mean, those kinds of things happen to Christians every day all around the world and more frequently than ever. But at least they don't happen here. We tell ourselves things like that. And we agree. When we hear about something like this, we think that is so evil. That is the work of Satan. And of course it is. But let me ask you, do you think that the same devil isn't at work here in our United States? I mean, you've got to admit, Satan has done some of his best work here in our country. What I mean is, literally none of us is coming close to risking our lives or even our livelihoods or any measure of our safety or security when we, like those Egyptian Christians, bear witness to Christ, when we share the gospel, when we talk to others about Jesus. Unlike those Egyptian Christians, in most cases, we risk very little harm to ourselves by witnessing there is almost nothing to lose. Yet, isn't it amazing how Satan has managed to convince us otherwise? He doesn't even need the threat of the sword, the threat of terrorists abducting us, the threat of martyrdom. The devil doesn't need any of those things to convince us 
not to witness, even with our First Amendment protections, even with freedom of speech, even with religious liberty, we are scared to death to obey our Lord and to fulfill the Great Commission. Why? I mean, it's unbelievable when you think about it. So like I said, the devil is doing some of his best, most subtle, most insidious, most destructive work right here in our country. And look at the headlines recently. He loves distracting Christians with politics. I mean, anything to keep us preoccupied to keep, keep us preoccupied uh, with doing something other than winning the lost to Jesus Christ. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. How true those words are. For us, ultimately, Satan is the reason witnessing is so hard. The devil couldn't, couldn't have cared less 25 years ago whether I talked to people about buying a stupid computer. He cares a great deal about whether or not I share the gospel with someone, or whether y'all share the gospel, whether y'all witness. That matters to Satan a great deal. And he's going to fight you, and he's going to fight me every time we even think about doing it. Let's not let him win at Tekoa First United Methodist. I urge you, put on the whole armor of God and fight him. Can you do that? I pray that you will. Almighty God, I run the risk of great hypocrisy standing up here and exhorting people to be witnesses when I look over the course of my Christian life and see how often I have failed. By God's grace, by your grace, God, I pray that you would enable each and every one of us to play our part in fulfilling this great commission. We all have something we can contribute. Enable us to, to pray that we could fulfill this commission. Enable us to speak without the fear that we're going to get something wrong, but trust instead in your Holy Spirit. And enable us to invite people that we know and people that we meet to come and experience your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Tacoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Tacoa First. We have live, in-person worship every week, and we also have online worship. Please see tacoafirstumc.org for more information.